Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is Make Matriarchy Great Again, our podcast disrupting history. My name is Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am here with Don Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome everyone. Don, we're going to do a little book review today, a little book club, so to speak, a little secret message there. Um, so we are going to talk about a book called The Fifth Sacred Thing. And, and uh, the way we're going to sort of structure this is I'm really going to interview you, Don, uh, about what you liked about this book, uh, what resonated for you and some of the themes and sort of how they tie into all the stuff that we talk about here. So uh, the book, The Fifth Sacred Thing, is written, was written in 1994 by, for, by an author called Starhawks. Uh, per her own bio, Starhawk is an author, activist, permaculture designer and teacher, and prominent voice in modern Earth-based spirituality and eco-feminism. Um, and she's the author or co-author of 13 books. Um, so she wrote this book in 1994, and the basic premise is uh, it's a duality, so a tale you have about freedom and slavery, love and war, uh, California sort of split in two, uh, Northern California that I guess is the best way you describe it would be matriarchal in terms of its structure, in terms of the way its society is organized, uh, uh, self-sustaining, sharing gift economy that we talked about uh and then southern cal where we happen to be is is a dystopian patriarchy fundamentalist overbearing orwellian place did i get enough good adjectives in there on that (laughs) it is i mean if you talk about the book as as a study in contrasts one of the things that i frequently see written about it is that it is contrasting a dystopian and a utopian future um, I'm, I'm not so sure I agree with that. I think it's more, um, nuanced than that, but yes, definitely the Southern part of California is, um, is sort of extrapolating out, uh, the worst path that we could possibly be on for the future where we continue to, um, destroy the environment and where, um, uh, fascist factions and hate continue to uh, grow in the population, and um, and religious fundamentalism uh, continues to gain power and sway in the population, and um, and then the specifically San Francisco, so not the entire northern part of California, but she's specifically looking at San Francisco. Um, sort of uh, rebels against that, takes a different path at a critical juncture in history and um, creates an enclave where uh, the five sacred things from which the book gains its title are respected. Let's actually read, uh, and I want to come back to this dystopian versus 
utopian and your sense that it's a uh, it's more nuanced uh, also want to talk about in the context of what northern southern california really like and what kind of metaphor is going on there but anyway declaration of the four sacred things uh, per the book the earth is a living conscious being in company with cultures of many different times and places we name these things as sacred air fire water and earth whether we see them as breath, energy, blood, and the body of the mother, or as the blessed gifts of a creator, or as symbols of the interconnected systems that sustain life, we know that nothing can live without them. I, I'll stop there. I won't read the whole uh, section through. So it's it's a it's certainly a very beautiful opening to that of the of what these sacred things are. But let, let me come back to north and south the, the contrast. So you don't think it is drawn that starkly say more um uh, because you know we do have a uh, you know it it seems as if these two opposites are contrasted in terms of where kind of like what we talk about what kind of options we have as a species as a as a as a group of beings you know to go the way that we have gone uh in the west primarily especially but actually all over the earth in a patriarchal way for the last you know few millennia or to go the way that we had been prior to that which you know we talk about here we feel like could be a a more healthy and a more sustaining pattern um why do you think it's not quite as a stark contrast in the book well i i, I mean i think that um I think that to call what is in San Francisco a utopia is really simplifying it. Um, one Got of the it. things that I really enjoyed about this book is that she didn't create this, you know, perfect utopia where everyone was um, the best version of, you know, that a human being could be, and uh, everyone acted in perfect concert and was, you know, kind to one another and to all living things. You know, it wasn't that sort of naive um, fairy tale version of a utopia. It is a it is a messy, complicated, argumentative. Um, quirky, fussy bunch of people who have simply made the choice to follow these four sacred things to achieve the fifth. And I'll say more about that in a second. But that it is not an easy place to live. Um, you know, when they open the book opens with this council meeting. And everyone is like, oh, God, we got to go to the council meeting because they know it's going to be just hours of people, you know, yammering away, trying to reach a compromise. Nobody thinks it's fun. Nobody, you know, gets a huge kick out of it. But everyone realizes that this is the price you pay for living in the society that they live in, that yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's, yeah. that's an excellent point. Yeah, that nothing is easy. Nothing is easy uh, when you're dealing with other human beings. Um, but that the difficulties that they choose uh, to embrace, which is to find a way to live with each other, are still far and away the preferable mode um, than, you know, autocratic, 
uh, religious fundamentalist fascism where most of the population is decreed as soulless and therefore the state can do whatever it wants with their bodies and their goods um, in service of, you know, the the few, the 1%, however you want to call it. I th- well, speaking of the difficulty of, of humanity, of, uh, for some reason right now, as I'm recording, uh, people around me have decided to move a piano. It, it's only the only way I could describe it. It's just banging all around me. So if you hear clattering and banging, don't worry. <laughs> it's not. We uh, haven't been. It's not an attack not from being the invaded, sun, right? Yeah, invaded from the, uh, from the south. The patriarchy from the south. Well, luckily, exactly. it doesn't just, seem to be coming through the mic, so I think we're good. Well, I, I hope not. Yeah. I can just hear. It's just like. Um, so so anyway, yeah. okay, well, let me let me come, let me stay with that. So, so okay. The, so if you won't call it utopia, what about? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna idea- quickly expand okay. on what you started sure, at sure. the very beginning with the rest of that quote. So because I think it explains a lot of what of the rest of the book. I mean, there's a reason she puts sure. it right at the beginning. So the four sacred things: air, fire, water, and earth. To call these things sacred is to say they have a value beyond their usefulness for human ends that they themselves become the standards by which our acts, our economics, our laws, and our purposes must be judged. No one has the right to appropriate them or profit from them at the expense of others. Any government that fails to protect them forfeits its legitimacy. All people, all living things are also sacred. No one of us stands higher or lower than any other. Only justice can assure balance. Only ecological balance can sustain freedom. Only in freedom can that fifth sacred thing we call spirit flourish in its full diversity. To honor the sacred is to create conditions in which nourishment, sustenance, habitat, knowledge, freedom, and beauty can thrive. To honor the sacred is to make love possible. To this, we dedicate our curiosity, our will, our courage, our silences, and our voices. To this, we dedicate our lives. So, so, the, so the, much the, of that is what we have talked about, and we have named it matriarchy. The idea okay. that everyone is equal, you know, it's an egalitarian society where everyone's voice carries equal weight, that we are all, we are all, um, we all have the right to partake in the things we need. You know, as Genevieve Vaughn says, the gift economy is universal giving to need. So no one can hold back the things that people need to survive in order to profit themselves at the expense of others. So we, so then would you agree that the setup is not utopia versus dystopia, but matriarchy or matriarchal type of society versus a, a patriarchal type of society? Patri- but yeah, very patriarchy taken sacred. to its limits, you know. Um, Carol, What about how – sorry. Yeah, ahead, Carol please. Christ has a wonderful series um, uh, 
on her uh, blog, I guess you would call it a blog. It's a website that has, is a collection of articles written by an enormous amount of people, but it's called Feminism and Spirituality. And she sort of, um, based on a conversation with Vicki Noble, she um, wrote a three-part series about how do we define patriarchy? Um, and, you know, more in a more uh, complete way than just the dudes are in charge. And one of the thing that she, things that she does is that she links it. She links sort of all of the all of the facets that patriarchy uses to keep itself on top. Economics is definitely one of them, but um, control of um, con- both um, sexism and racism placed in a in a religious context in which. The people who are on top are there because God has put them on top. Um, then the cultivation of endless war, so that um, the the sort of surplus of male bodies is always taken care of. In that we give them a heroic reason to to give their lives for the state so that, again, that very few 1% of men up at the top um, are kept in power. Um, and then uh, the idea of, uh, of other people's bodies being of service to the state, um, you know, the sort of holy political state uh, that becomes more powerful and more important and more reverenced than the individual needs of a human being. So that is what is happening in the Southland, um, as they call it, where uh, the stewards, who are the political wing, um, are a you know autocratic government, and then the millennialists. Uh, are the religious arm of this um, of this oppressive regime, and they have created a series of purity laws, four different purity laws. And if you violate any of these purity laws, you automatically are lose your soul. That the, the their religious system determines that. If you violate any of their laws, you lose your soul and therefore you're no longer human. So they can do whatever they want with you. They can um, they can put you in a pen and use you for breeding purposes. They can put you in the army where you're forced to um, carry out the laws of the state, um, fighting wars or oppressing the population. Um, you know, if you're a pretty young woman, of course, you go straight to the whorehouse where um, you are required to satisfy all comers. Um, or, you know, if you're a little older, you're sent to the breeding pens so that you can create more soulless people who are immediately, um, you know, born into slavery um, and uh and used by the state in whatever means the state decrees they can be used. So it is, it is not just patriarchy. It is patriarchy taken to its, you know, worst, most extreme uh, forms. Well, let's, let me, let's, let's 
let me question you on that a little bit too. What do you, from the standpoint of fiction, from the standpoint of narrative, mm-hmm. how do you feel about having the 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 extent to which this is the description of the South, um, this this uber patriarchy? How did it feel in terms of its uh, in the context of what you look for in a sci fi book, in the context of what you look for in literature generally? Um, do you think it was was it overdone, over the top? Was it, you know, nuanced? Because you were talking about the nuance. Was there the, the kind of nuance there that you wanted to see? How did you feel about how Starhawk brought out the world of Southern California? Considering recent events in our country's judicial history, um, uh-huh. I wonder what you Yes. Um, despite the fact that it is an extreme version of patriarchy, I don't think it's over the top. I think that this type of regime, regime has existed at many times and in many geographical locations throughout history. Um, and I don't think it is... Uh, out of the question that this kind of situation could develop in the United States um, if certain forces are allowed to go unchecked. Uh, you know, we, I, have, I, I, we have talked I, about situations. I mean, you know, slavery has existed for how many thousands of years? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is not all of the things that Starhawk mentions as ways in which a corrupt and oppressive regime could function. She's not making up any of them. All of them have been present in history um, at various times and multiple times uh, throughout recorded history. So, you know, uh, is she is she collecting the worst of the worst to make a point? Absolutely. But, um, you know, it's certainly not the only time that has ever happened in dystopian literature. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale is sort of the, the dystopian, um, gender dystopian future du jour. Uh, but, uh, but Margaret Atwood is, is just one of many who have posited uh, what would happen if that kind of power and depression goes unchecked well definitely i mean it it absolutely echoes atwood in terms of its it's it's the way it's described its sensibility and that i thought that was particularly interesting i think there are a couple of things we're going to talk about that this book i do think is uh, that this book paints uh, that i find prescient and in particular we're going to talk about the, the epidemic stuff but um it is also interesting, just from a California standpoint, that just for people to understand, there isn't quite that demarcation. And that's, it's obviously, it's a conceit, uh, you know, of course, of north-south in the general sense in America. Uh, but I, 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 if there's going to be this kind of fundamental religious overhaul, it's probably not going to happen in L.A., but that's just a wild guess on my part. Um, but it's I, I get the conceit and the setup. So it is so... It does work in that sense to create these two poles, these two different kinds of poles, polarities of, of gender and power development. Um, so 
we have this setup, right? And uh, we have these two different forces, uh, two different cultures separated. And what does the what does the author show us that eventually happens? Which we, when we talk about with this podcast, have seen throughout history. Whenever mm-hmm. there is sort of one kind of a matriarchal culture next to a, you know, sort of brazenly patriarchal one. Well, um, you know, Margaret Atwood, Vicki Noble, Starhawk, all of them are sort of of a generation. Um, and all of them were uh, a part of, you know, the, the sort of 70s um, peace uh, movements and women's liberation movements and women's spirituality movements that happened, you know, in the 70s. So it makes a lot of sense that there's, you know, a, a similarity of, um, of ideas there. Um, I think uh, Starhawk especially uh, was part of, was an active part in the peace movement and the anti-nuclear movement and um, anti-war, all of that sort of thing. So a major thread that develops in the second half of the books particularly is um, how do you, how do you practice nonviolent resistance? Um, So the first part of the book she sets up the sort of the the two forces at work here and this um you know matriarchal egalitarian viewpoint of how to approach um how we live how we walk upon the earth and what happens when a peaceful um egalitarian in many ways gentle I would say kind. I would say loving, because uh, absolutely. Yeah, the fifth, I mean, that's it's it's set up yeah, in a way that they're, the fifth, they're sharing and healing and all. Yeah, that. the fifth sacred thing they call spirit, but they also at various points in the book call it love. That it is only when you respect the four sacred things that you your your being becomes available to the fifth sacred thing, which is spirit, love, magic all of the sort of higher consciousness things that, um, you know, various new age spirituality um, and, you know, as we go further back, uh, ecstatic spirituality through the various religions, you know, all of that, we all as human beings are aware of that sort of higher vibration, that, that higher state of being throughout history, mystics and spiritual leaders have been striving for that and have been advocating to the rest of the population that as, you know, homo sapien sapien, as human beings, this is where we should be trying to get. We should be trying to move ourselves to that higher vibration level. And Starhawk is, in this book anyway, um, positing that, uh, that in order to be able to access that a higher vibration that you first must respect these four sacred things that you have to um, create a situation for yourself in life um, and in society where these things are inherently respected and revered that you can't achieve a higher vibration by stripping the land of its resources and enslaving other people. 
that it's just, you know, the two things are incompatible. Um, I, did, I, I get the absolute sense for you specifically that this particular construct, this, this particular uh, image that's painted and story and contrast that's painted really resonated for you, right? This this idea of the 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 San Francisco of Starhawk's sacred thing world. Well, I mean, you know, you and I have talked about how I am a practical New England bred gal. Yes, very um, much. You know, and... Just uh, why I'm probing this particular line, Yeah, one so. of the things that I really appreciated about this book is that she did. She said, you know, matriarchy ain't easy. It requires constant work on the part of people who are trying to maintain this civilization. And it's uncomfortable and it's annoying and all that sort of thing. But this is the work that you have to do if you want to reap the benefits of that. Um, And, you know, on her website, in association with this book, she released a 64-page document called The Fivefold Path of Productive Meetings. So she is advocating um, this as a practical solution to the toxicity that, you know, she sees in patriarchy. So, of course, it appeals to, you know, practical New England me, it's like, okay, great. So, you know, she's not saying we have to follow the woo-woo path of, you know, like just meditate on the higher being and the world will magically transform. No, you got to do the work. You got to do the work in order to achieve the positive outcome. So, yes, of course, that appeals to me. Um, well, I mean, just to in in that sense too, I think it's 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 interesting because we've often talked about what would it take to create this kind of alternative in our culture, and and, it, and I think one of the things that you can glean from book is that you would have to kind of go and sort of start create your own collective or your own community, start in a in this kind of like a a. a a smaller outlier way and build that out because yes, practically speaking, you know, you're, you're going to be dealing with what is the wider world that you get in our actual life, which is a little bit, which is more in spirit, like the Southland in this book. So yeah, I I do see what you're saying about how it does bring a practical notion of what this would be like and what it would take to do. Um, And she emphasizes that what is necessary is to change consciousness, that consciousness is the most powerful and can be the most, um, can be the most inflexible and yet the most changeable thing about a human being that you cannot make change until you can change a person's consciousness. And, you know, again, this is, this is directly out of the 70s women's movement where the first thing that the women's movement did was have conscious raised, consciousness-raising meetings, right? Until you, can, until you can make that click moment happen in people where they realize that this is not the way it has to be, then nothing that you say 
is going to make a difference. The, you know, the quote that I wrote down from the book is no information is useful unless the mind is prepared to receive it. So first you have to change people's consciousness and then you can change their actions. Well, let's, let me, let me, or we're going to talk more about what actually unfolds in the story, but staying on this point just a little bit and, and taking it, looking at it from a different angle. So all that you've said to me sounds great as a treatise, but what about as a work of fiction? What would you say to the argument, okay, yeah, these things are brought up here, but how, what do you think of how Starhawk brings it out in terms of a story? How she, how she conveys this to us in story form. In other words, the characterizations, or, or maybe in the, even in more so with respect to this, the use of language, the, the style, the prose itself. What's your thought on it? <laughs> I, 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 I think I know where you're laughing. Yes, I'm yes. I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. That's not where I'm going. <laughs> that's that an is, inside, that inside, is, inside joke for other mm-hmm. for, for those. That is such know. a writer's so, question. I know, and I, I am a writer. Yes, so it's and like, I am not. So to me, so. <laughs> it's fine. It's great. Okay. You know, she, does, okay. no, she has right. some. She has some incredibly powerful movements. Uh, uh, excuse me, moments in the book, you know, I mean, towards the end. And of course, I'm giving away spoilers here. But you know, the book was written in 1993. So hopefully, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, I think I think at this point, right, you know, past the spoil the no spoilers section, you know, the incredibly powerful moment where they finally get one of the elite, genetically engineered and chemically controlled soldiers to finally break his programming and have a human moment. And, you know, it involves him shooting an entire family one right after the other until, you know, there's nothing left but two children. And he finally cannot, like his humanity finally asserts itself. And he just, you know, turns catatonic essentially i mean that scene is incredibly powerful and has stayed with me you know i first read the book a year ago and i can still remember that scene um the the whole idea of the melissa and the bee medicine and and sort of how madron goes on this like initiation psychedelic trip where she goes into the hive world for, you know, a couple of weeks and learns how to an entire new method of healing because she's a, she's a former MD. She is a doctor, um, but she once civilization collapsed and once the, you know, San Francisco created its own society, um, you know, she learned additional ways of healing, energy, healing, magic, um, you know, trance, all this sort of thing. So that whole section where she goes into the hive is, you know, that was so cool. And I remember that really vivid, vividly. And then okay. the story that uh, the, the story that they tell of how San Francisco, like the day that San Francisco rebelled, where these four old women, you know, these four elder women, just marched out in front of the army, the advancing army with pickaxes. And rather than attacking the army, they plunged their pickaxes into the pavement 
and just started digging up the streets, putting down soil and planting seeds. And that that was the action that started the the rebellion that led to you know San Francisco being what it is when the novel opens. So um you know are there are there uh, sections in the book that are not as powerful? Absolutely. You know there are similar to um Ayn Rand's writing, you know, um uh where suddenly in the middle of the plot will the plot will just stop and we'll have, you know, however many pages of um of dialogue that is nothing more than a lecture or a, an interview on the concepts behind the philosophy of the book. I mean, uh, the the one that comes to mind is when Madron is uh, invited to this luncheon by um, the one percenter wives in the Southland. And they basically, you know, say, so tell us about your philosophy. And so she does for three or five pages. Um, so, you know, there are definitely sections where um, it is clear that the writer wants you to learn something. Um, but there are also just extremely powerful moments of narrative uh, in the book. So as I said to you when we were first talking about this book, I don't think it's a great book in the sense of like, a novelistic work of genius, but I think it's an important book. Okay, on that, because you've, you've given a lot of information about this. Let's give the context for the listener, because without that context, the genetic soldiers, the madrone, the bee medicine, the energy, it's, it's going to be like a psychedelic head trip. So <laughs> tell everybody what these things are, what, what, this, what the context of the story so is. So just, just lay out the yeah, plot. Yeah, there's three, um, there are three characters that we follow. Um, the first is Maya Greenwood, who is um, the, probably the closest in terms of a stand-in for Starhawk. And she is, um, she is 98 when the book opens. And she is one of the four women that, um, you know, that started, um, that, you know, started the activism that created the San Francisco community that it becomes. Um, and she is a storyteller. She's a historian for, um, for the community. So she is the keeper of um, the oral history of the community. And uh, the second is uh, Madron, who is this former uh, MD and um, who has become uh, the, one of the major healers for the population in that San Francisco community. She is the granddaughter of one of Maya's former lovers, um, and uh, actually two of Maya's former lovers. And, um, and then the third character is Bird. Bird is a young man who, at the beginning of the story, has been in captivity by the stewards for ten years because uh, he participated in a in an action where he and several other people from the San Francisco community went down and shut down one of the nuclear power plants that the stewards were using um, to uh, to have you know to control. Um, power and to, uh, 
have control that asset um, to feed their own power over other people. Um, so they destroyed this nuclear power plant. Um, and in the process, the other people were killed and Bird was captured. Um, and Bird, at the time of his capture, so that he wouldn't reveal anything about what happens in the North, because with the religious and political oppression of the Stuart regime, they spread all these rumors about what the people are like in the North, and they're all, you know, evil witches, and and they, you know, are all whores of Babylon, and, um, you know, all of the uh, non-white people are in charge, you know, because... Of course, there's incredible racism. People are required in the steward regime, people are required to register their race and everyone is segregated by color, um, by uh, ethnic heritage as well as color of skin in the steward regime. And the white people are, of course, on top. Um, so white supremacy is you know, a huge factor in this um, political oppression. So um, Bird has been in uh, captivity for 10 years. And at the beginning of the book, someone is uh, someone new comes into the jail where he is. And um, he has put himself in, he has given himself a mental block so that he could not reveal anything about what it's really like in the North to the stewards. They've been in torturing him and interrogating him. But when he was captured, he gave himself a, uh, like a magical block so that his memory was, was wiped out, was hidden. He basically gave himself amnesia. But 10 years later, this guy comes in and he has been beaten very badly. And out of just pure instinct, Bird heals him. And in doing so, he he wipes out the block and so his past comes back to him and uh and he has been uh you know uh living a terrible life for the last 10 years he's been in a prison system and he has embraced it wholeheartedly so he has been um both the victim of and the perpetrator of violence against his um prison mates um, and uh, he has become a very cruel person in many ways. And so as his memory comes back, he has to reckon with the things that he's done while he was not himself. Um, so he escapes and he finds his way north to back to San Francisco to tell them, you know, everything that has happened to him and also to let them know that the stewards are planning to attack. Uh, that, that they, that, yeah, that it's our chief. Yeah, that uh, they have run out of resources. They have, you know, squandered all of the resources that they could in the Southlands, and you know, after ten years of oppression and um, uh, clamping down on any, you know, private enterprise or individual thought, all of their electronics are falling apart. Um, all of their, you know, mechanical systems are falling apart. Um, so they need, they need more resources. And in typical sort of patriarchal colonialist thought, that means they're looking to the north to see what they can 
capture and um, commandeer. So Madron, uh, Bird finds his way north um, and tells, you know, tells the San Francisco society what is happening. And Madron um, goes on sort of a information gathering mission, like a spy mission. Uh, south and she goes and she tries to make contact with the pockets of resistance that exist against this steward millennialist regime and um, so we have a lot of exploration in her journey she's sort of the primary um, tool by which the writer uh, explains her philosophy yeah, and I, I can't yeah. help but also interject, you know, over the passage of time, the term millennialist takes on a very different note in our <laughs> modern culture. So it's exactly. like, I, I laugh every time you say it. Yes, anyway. yeah, millennialist I, I, as opposed to millennials. It's a completely... That would be a very different regime. It's a, very, a millennial regime. Exactly. Repeat. Yeah, the millennialists are the religious um, oppressors, and they're basically like the worst the worst version of white supremacist evangelical Christianity that you can imagine. Whereas the millennial regime would just be a very hipster. <laughs> exactly. A lot of artisan cheese and, you know, <laughs> yeah, hand, handmade, you know, bicycles and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that'll be a different, novel. it would be a Art. completely different novel. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, so in her journey, uh, Madron is sort of our avatar to investigate not only the different types of, uh, oppression that can be visited on people, but also the different types of resistance um, that can be mounted against those types of oppression. So there are the Hill Boys, um, who are all named John. <laughs> so, like every male in this in this Hill Boys groups are named John of some kind. So there's Johnny Appleseed, you know, uh, Hi John, John this, John that, you know, um, and uh, they they are they are like sort of like the um, they're sort of the guerrilla fighters, I guess, against the regime. They live in the hills right. in these terrible conditions. Um, where, you know, they have to steal water and steal food. Um, but they are, they're doing things like, you know, blowing up um, chemical plants that the stewards have and, um, you know, destroying um, the, the systems that keep water under lock and key so that, you know, people can, have access to water for a little while until the stewards come in and lock it all down again. Um, so they're doing these guerrilla resistance movements. Um, and uh, so through sort of Madron's information gathering mission, we learn of all of these different types of resistance and oppression um, and, you know, it's sort of Starhawk's, I think it's Starhawk's way of sort of like looking at all of the, like what kinds of different lives are possible if we find ourselves, um, you know, becoming the victims of the kind of oppression 
that we have seen, you know, existing in the world in in world history. Yeah, and I think of the one thing I really would like us to talk a little bit more about is there's one aspect of of life under the millennial list regime, mm-hmm. um, which is the the epidemics, the um, Yes, the biologically manufactured epidemics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so one of the things that they do to control the army and to control the population in general is that they they basically manufacture plagues and then supply the antidote or the um, the uh, uh, cures to only specific people. Now I'm just going to let that hang in the air for a little bit, uh, uh, lest we get you know chased off our podcast. But it's it's an interesting thing to read in this day and age. It's just a very it's it's prescient in many ways, and it talks about it. It it should, uh, what I mean to say is it brings up some questions that people have about just the contemporary world and how. Big pharma benefits from things, and, and it's the the fact again that we're they're dealing specifically with we have been for the last two and a half years. It's just interesting. It's interesting that she has this take on it, which um, I find in some ways, as I look at the contemporary world response to it, it's it's a it's a take or a look at things that is. That, that goes across any kind of an ideological divide, okay? In our modern world, the ideological, the ideology that may question that uh, or the ideological divide where that's questioned may, it may land in a different place than one might expect based on this novel. But I just think it's interesting that it's there um, and that uh, of all the things that she puts in the novel, it's the one that I was most... Um, I was most impressed by in the sense of just just looking at the world as it is now and the questions well, that it's we ask. Certainly, yeah, I mean, it certainly is a natural extension of this idea that if you do not hold sacred people's right to exist, then it, it seems a perfectly sensible, in fact, ingenious way of controlling the lives of others, right? create a need and fill it. I mean, that's advertising, right? That is mm-hmm. our, in our capitalist society, that is a maxim by which we live. If you want to make money, create a need and fill it. But if you take away the respect for people's agency and right to live, you know, that, that, that we have inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you do away with that, then it is a natural extension of creating a need and fill it. Let's create a biological, you know, a manufactured plague that will kill you if you don't buy our antidote. And we're it, we're rich. It's but it's also that, and it the idea of the fear that is created with it allows a populace to. Be, you know, we've as we've seen both through the war and terror and things of that sort, if you can make a populace afraid, they'll be more willing to trade liberty for security. Yes, right? yeah. So you're getting, that's, again, I think a really uh, wonderful point in the book because it's something that I 
personally think a lot about in contemporary culture. I worry a lot about governments trying to make us more afraid mm-hmm. so that we could be less free. And I and it's I, and it's a very patriarchal notion. It's, yes. a, it's the kind of thing you and I we, we've talked about this in a lot of different ways, where it's that kind of. Um, I will give you, I you know, I, I give you all this stuff, but I have to pull something away from you to make sure I have to hobble you like a broken, like a, a wounded bird. You know, I'll give you a beautiful gilded cage and I'll give you all the seeds you want, but I'm going to, you know, cobble you, you know, your leg or your wing or something of that yeah, sort. Yeah, I mean, the it's shepherd, very... the shepherd who, who guards the sheep also controls them. Mm-hmm. Also, so anyway, this this is particularly interesting in this yeah. in this novel. Yeah, and and that that sort of safety in exchange for freedom. I mean, that you see in both macro and microcosms all throughout our society. I exactly. mean, catcalling, particularly in gender. Yes, yeah. catcalling is a microcosm of that philosophy. I'm going to remind you that I can say whatever I want to you because it's my street. I can say vile, filthy things to you out loud just to remind you that you're not safe on this street. It's my street. I mean, you know, it is, it is just infiltrated in our society. And, uh, or, or even, you know, again, with that, in that same gender dynamic, you know, what I, just alluded to the uh, the idea of I'm giving you this home. I'll give you all these particular goodies, but they will come at the price of your freedom as a woman. You know, I'll give you the man may say I'll give you this, all these these items, but I don't want you to explore whatever will be give fulfill you individually or give you freedom or give you an option. Yes, you limit that option. Yes. so it's that. It's yeah. very common. So yeah. yeah. All right. So we've got this. We've got this biological plague. What? It, what's specific about it in this book? Let's talk about it a little bit more. What do you mean? Uh, in other words, so we've got this plague. How does it figure into our plot? Uh, how does it figure into uh, what our characters do, learn from it? What you know? What kinds of? How does how does the author use it in the book? Um, I, I think the plague, at least for me, the plague was was not um, that uh, central. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think you're. Are you working towards something? If so, just say. I'm, I, well, no, I'm more working towards the idea of. I, in this book, we have this 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 use of patriarchal weaponry mm-hmm. of sorts mm-hmm. that is that is countered by a. What a better term, more kind of magical, uh, kind of non, I, I don't want to say new age, but magical, spiritual kind of weaponry. Uh, and it seems like in, with the, the plague, you have that use of, you know, these kinds of magical or non-traditional solutions to how they're handling it. You get that also in terms of how when the forces face off against the the San Francisco collective, the different types of uh, responses that people have to it, as opposed to having a, you know, people taking up weapons. Well, opposed to, let's say, my version of the story where everyone gets an AK-47 <laughs> and 
<laughs> and a samurai sword, right. you know. Yeah. yeah. No. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean that is that is definitely like the last the last third of the book. I would say is this high stakes investigation of what do you do if you want, like, how do you maintain your soul when you are faced with overwhelming violence? Um, one of the things that uh, that they say is, um, oh, where is it? Let me see if I can. She says, you know, she looks out on the on the 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 world they've created, and uh, and you know, all of this amazing, beautiful uh, world that they've created. And basically, you know, she says, how do we, how do we maintain that in the face of overwhelming violence? We are, we are, um, we're prosperous, but we're um, vulnerable, essentially. Um, and so the Stuarts come marching, come marching north to take over, and they do. They occupy San Francisco. Um, you know, they do what they can to sort of slow them down, but uh, these armies, these just you know masses of armies with with guns and um, and uh, brainwashed troops who are uh, controlled by boosters. Um, so these soldiers who are bred by the state, um, their immune systems are essentially destroyed uh, in a similar way to sort of the way that we feed cattle in, um, in a giant um, meat farming uh, organizations where they nonstop feed cattle um, uh, drugs to, um, uh, to, Sort of keep them from from getting sick in the unhealthy conditions in which they're kept, and so they just have to keep pumping them with antibiotics. And in the process, they make the cattle dependent on those antibiotics. Well, similarly, that that principle is applied to these state soldiers, where they put them on these boosters, as they're called, and essentially the boosters destroy the natural immune system of the soldiers. So if they don't keep taking the boosters, they'll die. And that is the leash by which the army holds them because they can't defect, they can't disobey because they'll stop their boosters and they'll die. Um, so these soldiers have a, you know, are life and death. They have a life and death reason to obey the army. And so we have the nonviolent resistance, which, you know, the entire community gets together and agrees that they will only practice nonviolent resistance. And then we have this violent, high stakes, motivated force um, that they are essentially trying to change their consciousness. Again, we go back to you have to change the consciousness. And they practice a variety of different techniques um, of nonviolent resistance, which are fascinating. If you are interested in learning about, you know, the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. 
But the thing that she does not shy away from as an author is that there is an enormous cost. People are, a lot of people are murdered by the soldiers and throw themselves in the path of bullets in order to try to change the soldier's consciousness. So it is by no means a warm, fluffy, fuzzy, love, love, love sort of technique. The body count for maintaining your, you know, for lack of a better term, maintaining the soul of the community, the body count is pretty high. So it is, um, you know, it's an extremely dramatic conflict. And again, you know, in keeping with this, uh, this utopia, quote unquote, that Starhawk has created and presents to us, it is not an easy path. It is a dangerous, deadly, difficult path. But in the end, it is the only way. It is the only way to maintain the five sacred things. Well, let's talk about it. We're all just about at the end of our time. How does the novel resolve itself? How does the novel Oh, end? you want to tell the ending? They win. Oh, okay. You know what? I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, yeah. cat's out of the bag now. So. Yes. But yes. They win. All right. They uh, win. Um, what happens is, you know, that moment, that incredibly charged moment that stays with me that I described earlier, you know, they one of the the genetically engineered booster controlled elite soldiers um he he they get through to him they find a way to um to trigger his innate humanity um and then madron who has you know who is a healer and has since learned you know throughout the course of the book continues to develop as a healer and grow as a healer she finds a way she finds the key to um healing the soldiers getting them off the boosters essentially um helping them through the withdrawal for the boosters and saving their lives and um they use the racial dynamics the 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 racism that the stewards practiced um, to to reach the non-white members of the army because you know their their community and the San Francisco community is is interracial. You know, again, everyone's voice has equal weight, so they're multiracial. It's a multiracial community, and so they use that to reach out to the racial um, racially oppressed members of the army and say you know, the, the, the phrase that they continue to use, there is a place set for you at our table if you will choose to join us. So they say, we're not going to fight you. We want you to join us. Um, we have a place for you. This gorgeous, amazing life you see around you where no one charges you for water, where you can do whatever you want. You're not locked into a profession by the government. You can have this life. Just join us. Just join us. Put down your gun and join us. And so that one soldier who they name River because the soldiers don't have names. They just have numbers. Um, they give him a name. They give him his health back. And he is able to speak to his own people, the soldiers of his unit, 
and they there's a mass defection and um and the army falls apart in the face of the promise of a better life hmm. well thank you for this uh discussion this guide through this book let me just close with asking you do you would you recommend you know your recommendation on the book would you recommend it oh absolutely absolutely okay. like i said it's an important book and i think that you know um the handmaid's tale has had you know as i say it is it is sort of in the popular consciousness right now but the handmaid's tale doesn't offer solutions it doesn't offer it offers resistance but it doesn't offer a roadmap out, whereas the fifth sacred thing does. It's not an easy trail. It's not, um, you know, it's not an easy road to walk. It requires work, but it is a roadmap out. And I think that is vital at a time like this. a sincere uh, applause for that. So thank you, Don Sam Alden. Thank you, Sean Marlon Newcomb. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. This is the 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. We have been talking about The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk. We will be back again soon. Take care. Take care, everyone, and blessed be.